welcome to the Philia podcast. Philia means daughter. We are the daughters of the women who came before us and we fight so that our daughters may be free. We are a women-led volunteer organization. Our vision is a world free from patriarchy where all women and girls are liberated. We seek to contribute to the women's liberation movement by building sisterhood and solidarity among women locally, nationally, and globally. By amplifying the voices of women, particularly those less often heard or purposefully silenced, and by defending women's human rights. Our podcast seeks to shed light on some of the most pressing issues facing women and girls around the world. Please take from them what you can. In sisterhood and in solidarity, the Philia team. Welcome to um, the Philia podcast and today I'm going to be interviewing Afsana Lachaud uh, who is a British woman ordered to pay her ex-husband's legal costs of £94,000 after a family high court case involving her trying to gain contact with her son. She's launched a crowdfunding campaign on GoFundMe to raise the money or faces the threat of bankruptcy. She won the Emma Humphreys Memorial Prize in 2019 for her role in campaigning for equal treatment for women in the justice system. And she persuaded the Foreign Office to change their travel advice to warn women of the legal perils they could face in the United Arab Emirates. Afsana is now in the process of challenging the costs order. So Afsana, thank you very, very much for joining us. Um, we really appreciate your time. Um, I just wanna go back. This all began way back in 2012. Um, when the divorce in the United Arab Emirates, Emirates was granted. Um, can you give us a summary of events since then? Because a lot has happened. Yes, um, thank you, Pippa. I'm really delighted to be here. And although it's a very difficult time for me, uh, I'd just like to give my appreciation to Philia for supporting me and to Philia listeners and uh, Philia supporters as well to sort of give me this platform to be able to share my story so thank you very much for that for that um so your question asked me about to to, to just to let obviously people know what my case mm -hmm. is and it's, it is quite complicated so i'll try and summary it yeah. so actually what happened was in 2011 i was living in dubai my relationship broke down with my ex-husband We'd, uh, we have a, we, at that time, my son was, uh, uh, in 2011, one year old mm -hmm. and locked us out of the house in Dubai. And I found myself destitute, uh, on the streets of, uh, Dubai with a one year old baby to look after. Um, I wasn't given any financial support and I found myself in this awful position pretty much in 2011 where I was homeless, my passport had been taken by the Dubai police. Um, I had made a complaint against my ex-husband on the grounds of domestic abuse, but the police didn't believe me. And what had happened after that is a series of, a series of events, uh, there were lots of newspaper articles on my story, where I found myself in a terrible situation with a 12-month-old baby to look after, passport being taken by the authorities and between 2011 and 2013 I was uh, effectively homeless sleeping on floors mm -hmm. 
um, relying on charitable handouts to feed uh, myself and my baby. Um, the British Embassy, uh, which won't come as any shock to anyone, were absolutely, quote, useless. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't, for example, I was being arrested several times at one stage in uh, June, I think it was 2012. I can't remember if it's June 2011 or 2012, but at one stage, which was documented on the embassy, I was chucked in prison in a Dubai prison cell with Louis, who was 12 months old at that time, um, all because of false complaint that was made by my ex-husband. So I was basically being arrested with all these false complaints. The Dubai authorities and police were harassing me a fair bit and um, the embassy as I said were of no help and then I found myself in a refuge at one stage I was sent by the embassy to a domestic violence refuge in Dubai for protection and safety um, but unfortunately that uh, the refuge in UAE is situated next to Dubai's central jail it's actually staffed by police and under Dubai law you're under Dubai's guardianship laws, partner, well, not partners, husbands can come and visit the refuge because that's the law they're entitled to do that. So it's not a refuge in, in, in the sense that we know it. So there was a series of events that happened which led me to go into hiding, which again is quite because of the harassment and abuse from the police and the constant arrest that I faced as a result of the false charges. And therefore, in 2012, I found myself um, being divorced in absentia. I was still in hiding. And my ex-husband had gone to the UAE courts and obtained a divorce, which is ostensibly based on Sharia uh, yeah. Islamic law. And then in 2013... Sorry, he... to, sorry to interrupt you. I, I didn't realise that the, the Sharia divorce... Um, happened without you actually even being yeah. there okay yes. right thank yes. you okay yeah so it was done in my absence because i was in yeah. hiding mm -hmm. at the time and um the another element of the story to give you a synopsis we're under uh, which we've come in to discuss later but under in those proceedings the same two policemen that had refused to take my complaint of domestic violence and because it's Islamic law, they were giving, they were the two male witnesses. So in mm -hmm. a career divorce, you need two male witnesses or witnesses to give. So they were the witnesses to the divorce. I wasn't around. And in that divorce, there was an order to have Louis removed from my care. And so Louis was taken off me in 2013, in October 2013. Mm. Uh, I, like I said, I was in hiding. My ex-husband found where we were living. And then because he had the court order, which basically issued the, ordered the permanent removal of Louis, um, Louis was taken off me. And then I was accused of kidnapping and stood trial actually for kidnapping in um, February, 2014. Mm -hmm. That must have so been unbelievably traumatic and stressful for you. Uh, I don't, I mean, you know, this is obviously six years on yeah. mm -hmm. and I would say that the um, trauma is, uh, is still ongoing. You never get over that. Mm -hmm. I mean, at that, I was very, I mean, I was about to be imprisoned actually. Yeah. 
And had it been not for my family's campaigning, they campaigned, there were a lot of media reports on my case. I always thought that I would never get out of the UAE alive. Mm -hmm. I thought rotting in jail because these regimes and these places, I mean, anyone knows about Dubai's system. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I really had no hope of getting back. I had no hope of seeing Louis, more importantly, the effect of being imprisoned for kidnapping would have meant that I would never see Louis. Mm-hmm. And the order gave me no contact with Louis. So it's almost like the trauma of having a child ripped out of your womb, mm. then, you know, that yeah. obviously had a deep impact on my own mental health from mm-hmm. that time. I suffered PTSD as a result. So all of this happened in, like I said, in, you know, post in 2014. And then I found myself in 2014 in a position where I was about to be imprisoned, like I said, for kidnapping and then for defamation because my ex-husband had reported uh, to the Dubai police that I was defaming Dubai and defaming him because of all the newspaper articles. So I, I would not have been released. I was actually sentenced. I was given a one month suspended sentence, but I wouldn't have been released had it not been that the international media had highlighted my case. So Dubai mm-hmm. being is obviously very sensitive to those issues. And I yeah. suspect why they gave me suspended sentences, they didn't want a British woman. Yeah, uh, they're quite keen, aren't they, to, to um, present themselves favorably to the, to the West. So, yeah. yeah. So campaigning does help. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously forever and eternally grateful, not to the British government, but to the British public yeah. and, you know, to this day, I owe my freedom, my life actually to the, you know, to the really, you know, good, um, humane people. So your that... family, yeah, your family and the media then campaigned for yes. your release and you yeah. returned to the UK. So I returned yeah. to the UK. Louis was, had been taken off me. Mm-hmm. So I returned in 2014. Yeah. Louis had been taken off me. And for the pretty much the first year, I would say life was very difficult for mm-hmm. me. I mean, it's, like I said, suffered severe PTSD, very much depression. I mean, you know, the imprisonment, the 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 sheer thought of being separated from Louis mm-hmm. was something that I could handle. So pretty mm-hmm. much the first year, you know, I I mean, the way I describe it is pretty much spent the first year in bed. Really, I yeah. couldn't go out. Um, my PTSD would be triggered by people I thought who were Emirati or, and it sounds really weird, but you, you know, certain imagery would trigger me. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, I wouldn't want to go out. I wouldn't want to socialize. I mean, it was at a stage, I mean, I've got young nephews and nieces that are the same age as Louis. I couldn't bear to go to a playground or go out and see another child of Louis's age mm-hmm. yeah. because to do that, was just a reminder of what I had lost. So yeah. Louis was lost to me. So that was painful. And then somehow uh, I managed to get the strength and put myself together with a lot of help from women's groups. And that's why organizations like Philia and all the other organizations that are campaign for women's rights. I got in contact with Southall Black Sisters, with Pragna and her team, mm-hmm. and with their help and with the help of just through campaigning, you know, there were people on Twitter. Um, I managed to start a campaign to be reunited. It was called Bring Louis Home, to be reunited with Louis. 
and I was, you know, obviously lobbying the Foreign Office mm -hmm. and the Embassy to highlight the plight of my case. I wrote pretty much to all the ministers and the FCO on a continual basis. So I started campaigning basically. Yeah. And through the campaign, I also started to, I was very lucky and got the help of pro bono legal team to file a case for basically to have contact with Louis. So my argument and my legal campaign really was about here, here's what happened. I'm a British citizen. Louis also joint British nationality. What happened in Dubai was wrong. I was divorced, like I said, in absentia, but also I was divorced under Islamic sort of divorce. And we had married, my ex-husband's French, Catholic, and we had married here. Although I know in law that doesn't really matter where you marry, as I found out, law is very complicated. But just everything about my case was wrong. And it's just whatever level you look at it, it was just humane. And I had no contact. So my only reason for doing the legal uh, case was I just wanted to see Louis. And I wanted Louis to know that he had a mother in his life. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what, yeah, that's what jumped out from the, the, the papers that you sent me. It, it wasn't about money or anything else. It, it was just about child arrangements, wasn't it? And arranging contact with him. Yes. And that's mm -hmm. something that the legal team have always vociferously argued mm. uh, in court. So, you know, when you look at, as I was trying to explain to the English court, I thought, and as I've said throughout my crowdfunding campaign, which a lot of people have uh you know amazingly donated people have been amazingly generous and compassionate is that here was i a british woman um who had no protection um I, you know regardless of whether or not you believed me i remained separated from my son mm -hmm. because of islamic divorce yeah and um i as it were as it was i was facing uh the the sharia divorce judgment Mm -hmm. I had no contact unless I went to Dubai. So one of the elements was that I should go to Dubai and I should see Louis there. Yeah. And in fact, English court, that's what Justice Mostyn first wanted me to do. Or I, well, do. I can imagine that, you know, being asked to do that, that's the, the last thing that you would ever, ever want to do after your experiences in Dubai. But can I just go back to the grounds for divorce in the Sharia divorce? Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you just explain what those were? Right, so why the Sharia divorce was granted? Right, so the divorce that was granted, although it was granted, so the divorce that was granted was under personal status laws. Mm -hmm. So although the court wasn't, the court that it was granted in, um, and which obviously the, the judge, Justice Mostyn, made a great deal about, was for non-Muslims, mm -hmm. and that's correct, it was the non-Muslim court, but the personal status laws that the divorce was granted is entirely Sharia based. Mm -hmm. So it, the whole of the, what people need to understand is all of Dubai's legal system is Islamic Sharia. Yeah. So when my divorce, which I'm quite happy to share, I've shared bits of it on, you know, on social media, quite happy to share it. I've shared it with all the media outlets is, I mean, it starts off saying in the name of merciful Allah, the head of the Dubai court is Sheikh Maktoum. Mm -hmm. All the, by judges swear an oath to the leader and to, to Allah. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the divorce that I was divorced on were the fact that I disobeyed my 
ex-husband, disobedience, mm-hmm. things in the divorce about, um, you know, that I was neglectful because of Louis had a skin condition. Basically, Louis had eczema. I mean, eczema runs in my family. Mm-hmm. It's not ground for neglect. I, no. I, so that, those, what, that was the, one of the grounds. Um, there were references. There was a specific reference that, uh, that was stipulated in the divorce that I had um, been going out clubbing. I was a frequent night clubber and I go out drinking and clubbing. Now, the, then, and then my ex-husband, and he actually in the divorce it says, here are the pictures. So the pictures, and I can quite categorically state what the pictures are. The pictures that were given to justify the divorce and my neglect and my clubbing is that the, those were pictures of my hen night. Mm-hmm. So I had... Um, we had had an English uh, marriage ceremony after Louis was born. I couldn't have it when I was pregnant. And so what had happened was I took Louis to the Mint Leaf restaurant in Trafalgar and my friends had organised a hen night before mm-hmm. our big, uh, big event. So that was taken in a restaurant. Yes, there was alcohol. There were other children there. There were adults. So, and there were also references, quite homophobic references that I frequented with libertines which meant my gay friends basically how quaint Um, libertines that's the word that's the word and i mean like i said i'm quite happy to show anyone the picture sorry just just to say again though i mean dubai drinking alcohol is legal in dubai isn't it uh no it's not legal oh sorry i thought it was i thought they they allowed they they do allow drinking for expats yes is yes and in the hotels and restaurants yeah yes so in one sense you're right it is but it's still islamic law but that's yeah. a quirk of Dubai because they want tourists to drink and they want their money yeah exactly so, so but, it and they, they want it both ways maybe yeah okay so those are, the, those are some of the grounds and then the photos as i said were photos mm-hmm. of my hen night mm-hmm. so the fact that we used photos of our wedding effectively I mean he wasn't there on the hen night obviously and I was there with my girlfriends and gay friends so you can see uh, I mean like I said I'm being very carefully factually stating that there's there so these were all the grounds that I was a drinker I was a clubber Mm. uh, I was neglectful because of his ex and you didn't obey your husband but see that's what I find really interesting because Judge Mostyn uh, in the High Court here said that the the divorce laws in Dubai, which have also been condemned by the UN for treating women as second-class citizens, were broadly similar to our own. So how, how can he reconcile those grounds for divorce with the divorce laws here? And what did your legal team say about this? Well, good question. I mean, I can't answer for Justice Mostyn as to how you know, I mean, I, I think that's the million dollar question I've been asking for the last three years. Um, I think what's, I mean, you have, the judgment is public. I mean, mm-hmm. you've got the, anyone yeah. can see. And there are various, I think what's insightful and what's useful to understand is there are various references that he makes about the Dubai law. So mm-hmm. when he says, it's obviously not in the judgment, um, but he says it's broadly similar to Rome. So, for example, in one part of the, and I can't remember if it's in the judgment or the transcript, which I have, he says that they bent over backwards, the Dubai police, 
uh, bent over backwards to help the other Dubai court system. Um, that I was being arrested. So one of the big arguments my legal team made, um, mm -hmm. Richard Harris, is, you know, there is a reason, for example, why I went into hiding because I was being constantly arrested mm -hmm. on false charges. And then one of the other things that was he found a finding of fact in, and it's written in the judgment. Justice Moston said. I wasn't trapped in Dubai. I mean, part of my case and how the media had reported my story was that I had been trapped in Dubai. Now, Pippa, I've got a British embassy. I did a subject access request. I've got my whole embassy file. Mm -hmm. I presented, or my legal team presented extensive evidence, contemporaneous notes from my embassy file. The embassy had known a lot about my case. And although I said they were useless, they had, for example, come along with me to the police station as they do when mm -hmm. you're being arrested mm -hmm. yeah. my father was taken away from me in 2011 and wasn't given back to me until 2014 after the kidnapping trial so that means my passport for example was taken away from me and held for three years yet justice mostyn concluded that and then it's in there in the judgment that i hadn't been trapped i had free will and i did as did as i pleased i think his exact quote was um you know he made some very uh, what can only be described as what i think quite sexist quite personal comments yeah. about mm -hmm. in my lifestyle and um which i think are like i said deep rooted in misogyny so when you say um you know what what how can this be right what did mm -hmm. my legal my legal team did put forward extensive arguments they also put forward which listeners might know i had a parallel case in france and i've said that on my crowdfunder there's more details about that now the french court found the dubai divorce and dubai laws to be discriminatory towards women mm -hmm. it actually says the french decision said that basically i've been discriminated against and dubai personally laws are abhorrent and treat mm. women yeah, sorry. Just to um, just to explain to people listening, can you mm. just explain why there was the need to um, have the case heard in France as well yeah. as England? If you could just explain yeah. that for us. Try and make it very simple. Isn't yeah. It? So, <laughs> because it is complicated so all that listeners i guess for philia uh you know listeners need to understand is that um i my ex-husband is french and so what he did is when i returned back to the uk without louis in 2014 my ex-husband as a french citizen needed his dubai divorce ratified mm -hmm. in france all the french apparently this happens to all french citizens yeah. because didn't get a European divorce. Interestingly enough, he we had a prenup shul agreement signed in France, which said that he would use European law and French law to divorce. Mm -hmm. But because he didn't do that, and he used UAE Islamic law, that had to be ratified, what's called recogni recognition. Mm -hmm. It had to be in the French court. But the French court, the French Court of Appeal and the French Supreme Court found on my side i challenged it mm -hmm. i said i don't recognize the divorce just like i said in england i don't recognize the divorce it's discriminatory and it should never be recognized and actually the french court in um the french supreme court this was in i think you i've got i've got the chronology here but uh, it was last year tail end mm -hmm. of last year came down on my side and the french court of appeal and said bylaws discriminate 
I, the treatment that I was given was not the same. Basically, they said that men and women are equal before the law. Yeah. And and equality and it breached European human rights law and okay, that's so, what yeah and presumably then buoyed up by that decision you thought you would get um, a judgment in the UK is that correct yeah so the sequence of events was once the court of French court of appeal had said that my legal team did think that the British court of appeal because mm -hmm. obviously my judgment Mostyn's judgment came before the French court of appeal mm -hmm. if you so they were slightly they weren't running at the same time so you know yes. it's a complicated time scale but put simply um the the british court of appeal when i appealed mostyn's judgment basically mm -hmm. because that wasn't right the british court of appeal were aware of the french decision mm -hmm. yet they still decided to ratify justice mostyn's yeah. high court yeah and what i think most people will think why is it the French court said men and women are equal, Dubai personally status laws are discriminatory towards mm -hmm. women, we don't respect their law, which is what the French said, we don't respect your law. Mm -hmm. But the British court said, actually British Court of Appeal and the British Supreme Court said, no, nothing to see here, you know. Yeah, interesting. And also I was, um, when I was making my own timeline here, um, it took quite a few months for the judgment to um, arrive because the, the hearing was in October 2018 and then you didn't get the judgment until May 2019. Oh, for the Court of Appeal, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Didn't get it till a year later, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, that's quite a wait. Yes, I'm told that our legal system is, you know, the courts yes. are <laughs> as you probably... Yeah, yeah, but this was, this was pre-Covid, so... <laughs> yeah, yes. anyway. Yeah. Okay. Um, thank you for explaining that, because uh, some people might not have sort of understood that, you know, the French yeah. um, dynamic as well as the, yeah. the, the British one as well. Yeah. Okay, thank you. So just going back to um, Mostyn's judgment, I mean, there was criticism on both sides, about both sides, from Justice Mostyn um, about yeah. you and your ex-husband's behaviour. Um, but it does seem that he penalised you more heavily. Why do you think that is? Yes, yeah, yes. In the judgment itself, and both at the hearing itself, he did criticise both parties. Uh, and then in the end, he came out and said that he preferred the evidence of my ex. I think that's the judge's terms, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Preferred uh, my ex-husband's. So he, ba I mean, he basically, in essence, accused me of lying. Um, I mean, that I'm using my own mm -hmm. interpretation and uh, there was a lot of evidence given in court I mean one thing that again might interest readers is I had a, a quite an eminent independent uh, doctor look at my examine my condition of PTSD and in the judgment he goes to great lengths to basically debunk you know the, his here he's mm -hmm. false memory so in his mind what he came out was that I had made it up my memories were probably unreliable and false. Mm -hmm. And in fact, he does say judgment that, uh, I think he quotes me saying that I wanted to be indicated. And I think he painted me very much like, it's almost like what, you know, in the book, Eve was framed that Baroness Kennedy yes, wrote. Yeah, I, I was a book. manifestation. Mm -hmm. All those, you know, 
everything feminist. I was the other woman. I was yeah. the whore, the slut. I'm using those words because that is how women like myself are painted. And even though, and this is the thing, although he criticized me and people, you know, will point to that. And mm -hmm. I mean, I do a media thing. They said, well, you know, this is very tricky because you've got, you know, he basically didn't believe you and, you know, he doesn't believe the abuse. Um, I think what's insightful is on one hand, he says that, yes, I don't believe, you know, you weren't abused, you weren't this, and, you, you know, you made it all up. He finds finding of facts. He says I wasn't trapped, even though the British Embassy records clearly say my passport was taken. He doesn't make anyone that understands economic abuse. He does a finding of fact, Pickle, which I think is very important, is he does find that I was kicked out of the house. Mm -hmm one-year-old baby yeah. I was given no financial support I've never been given a single penny in fact my ex-husband has sued me and pursued me multiple times um, as you can see with the cost order mm -hmm. um, so he finds that I was chucked out of the house he makes a fact finding that I've got PTSD he finds fact finding that I hadn't received any financial support now by any definition certainly in this country and across actually Europe anyone who understands domestic violence mm -hmm. that yeah. manifestation of domestic violence well that's what I wanted to ask you because um, there's another case another recent case from last year I think uh, yeah. where the judge was heavily criticized about his attitude to domestic abuse control and coercion and I just wanted to, I mean, you've probably answered this already, but I just wanted to ask you um, what you think about domestic abuse training for judges, particularly family judges in the UK. Um, criminal judges are given training on consent uh, for um, sexual offences, but family judges aren't. And I just wondered what your thoughts were on domestic abuse training for judges. Um, I think, I mean, obviously there are more eminent campaigners and, you know, colleagues mm -hmm. in this and organizations who've uh you know including like i said filia who obviously the, the family court system there's one thing i do know and i campaign about the family court system is in a mess mm -hmm. everyone um go you know in terms of training for i think one of the training that should be organized it's actually an awareness of the lived realities of women's lives i can only talk about my case and the judge in this specific case who may who i would say went out of his way to denigrate me, to mm. paint in a specific, and it is very personal because you can see that if I, I've got the trial transcripts, which are different, transcripts tell you a different, a judgment, I always say to people, not everything is black and white. A judgment tells you one thing that's publicly available. The actual hearing transcripts tell you a completely different story. I mean, this was a judge that says, going back to your previous question, that Dubai system is the same. And he actually said that had I been in England, he would have had me arrested and uh, the same thing would have happened to me now first of all I, i'm just quoting what my legal team has said that wouldn't have been the case in this country whether it's domestic abuse or not in family court cases you have kafkas mm -hmm. kafkas is involved because the welfare of the child is paramount yeah. in dubai the equivalent of kafkas is the dubai police criminal police mm -hmm. there is no kafkas so how a judge a british judge can say the Dubai family court system is the same as ours. I was yeah. divorced by two male witnesses, two police officers. Again, Mostyn's judgment said, 
he actually does say, well, that's not different to ours. We have police giving evidence in court all the time. Yes, you may have on criminal matters. I mean, can you point to me or any reader where a British woman has been divorced in a British court by two police officers? I mean, mm. that exists in our family yeah. court system? This is so interesting because the through your campaigning on this issue you've managed to change the travel advice of the foreign and commonwealth office haven't you and, and it's, yeah. it's now been changed to actually warn women um about the the legal dangers that they might face from you know divorce law in dubai so you know women thinking of going to dubai on holiday um yes. you you've actually managed to change the advice from coming out of the foreign office so when did that happen actually that happened um, in, when I returned. So that happened in the Foreign Office. Is They have a section there, Travel Advice yeah. to UAE. And it was there's 2014, a, was it? Or? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. More shit buried in there. I mean, they always bury it in because you have to remember the British government have lots of lucrative, rich trade deals <laughs> with the UAE. So it's all very political. And this is why I suspect that there, and there is an evidence of the courts actually getting involved and being political as well, although they say they're not. But I, I can't. Well, yeah, Justice Mostyn, he described the UAE as a friendly nation. Those were his exact words. So yeah. he was keen to perpetuate, you know, the good relations, wasn't he? Yeah. Yes. I think if you look at his work, his, that is his exact quote in mm -hmm. his like, transcript. He says the UAE friendly nation, but he doesn't say he says the French decision that like, nah. Nothing to see here. Do they know they're talking? So yeah. the UAE, this is a country whose ruler, and I remind uh, those who don't know, this country, the ruler of Dubai, his wife, Princess Haya, last year, fled to this country. She also filed a family court case. Mm -hmm. And in that, was Justice McFarlane ruled that the Dubai ruler was guilty of torture and kidnap of his own daughters, Princess Latifa, who is not a resident of England, or is not a resident of, yeah, but is not resident. Her children aren't a resident of England. They have no relationship with England. And, and this is not a common criticism of Princess Haya. I mean, it's right that she got protection here. Mm -hmm. So she fled. And a British court, the same British court, which damned me and said that I should have been, I was treated fairly by a UAE court and how dare I kind of challenge that. In the same judicial system, they granted the wife, a princess, uh, a court order to say that actually Dubai's judicial system wasn't good and she would have been in danger. And the head of the Dubai court, which is Sheikh Maktoum, was found guilty of torture and human. How, how is that right? And how is that morally or legally justifiable? Mm, yeah. So how are you taking this forward and how are you challenging this um, really draconian, it seems, um, cost order? And, you know, what are your next steps then? Okay, so with the cost order, like I said, I, I um, because I lost the case, just to mm -hmm. remind people, I lost my case. And the law says that if you lose, not necessarily in family, what happened was the judge at his discretion, no reasons given anywhere, he said that I should pay my ex-husband's legal costs. And I, my ex-husband um, is not, you know, not of the same, you know, he's wealthier than I am. Um, and at the time he ordered it, as I've said in the crowdfunder, I didn't have a job. I was caring for my mum. 
I was suffering, like I said, again, severe mental health difficulties. So to this day, I still don't understand why he would use a discretion. And it goes back to that thing about, I think, misogyny and punishment. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, you tell me, Pippa, you're a person of the law. Um, why would, why, as I say to people, why would you do that when you, when the law, if the law didn't require you to do that, why would you do that? Or even if I had to pay or say why, if it was my conduct, then normally it's specified in the judgment. So no reasons were given, which puts me in the position that I am now where I've had to go public to raise the money. So as of today, while we're recording this, thankfully, mm-hmm. You know, people have been amazing and I've got 28,000. Now, that doesn't satisfy the whole of the um, costs. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to challenge it to see, for example, if I can get it reduced or if I can, there is some flexibility. I don't know the law and I've been acting as a litigant in person so far. And the way I look at it, Pippa, is it's very bleak for me. Mm-hmm. And the system is just stacked against me. I mean, apart from a wing and a prayer, I can't see myself getting out of this situation because it's very overwhelming because everyone, as everyone tells me, it's the law. And how do you fight that? And the only way I can is to raise awareness. Yeah. I raise awareness yeah. through the you know, I put a petition up about cost orders that they shouldn't be granted. Because if this happened to me, Pippa, this could easily happen to other women, other yeah. people who have men and women. Actually, it's not. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, in this case, it's about myself as a as a as a victim. But it could happen to anyone. So it's pretty bleak. Um, and I know I should. Well, you do. You say it could happen to anyone, but it does seem like you know systemic uh sexism really and the misunderstanding of domestic abuse and how everything is stacked against you and i mean you've been through so much you know obviously it has had an impact on you but you know how how are you now where are you now and how is you know on a personal level well i would say i think to end on a positive note after all pretty much eight years of fighting mm-hmm. this. I do have contact with Louis, as I made clear to people. Yeah. I get to see six hours a year. So twice a year, Louis comes to this country and I get to see him in a contact center that's mm-hmm. supervised. Mm-hmm. So it's three hours each time. So although it's been a very costly, um, financially costly and psychologically and emotionally very cost, uh, you know, impact on me, um, you know, at least now my son knows that I'm around. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's very, like I said, we have, you know, sort of uh, what do I call video contact as well. Yeah. So there is that which I want to make clear. So, you know, for all that fighting and for all the things that I've had to put up with and trauma, mm-hmm. I have got a relationship with my son. So yes. on one level, say, was it worth it? If anyone that's a mother who's you know, lost a child or you're a stranger or any parent, I mean, you know, you know, fathers as well, um, you, that's the most precious thing you have. So I will always be indebted to my legal team who got me that because I think there can be no better. And, I, you know, when we look at the legal system, I was, I was very fortunate. If I didn't have pro bono help, and this would be my other sort of plea because the system is so broken, 
is that how would women, other women, end, mm-hmm. end up where they, they don't have those resources? It's impossible. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, to everyone's support is, I think campaigning works. I think the solidarity in the women's network and through the supporters, it's been absolutely amazing. And I would say that how I am now is I'm only standing really because of everyone's support. I mean, a hundred or one percent, I can mm-hmm. say that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that. I mean, that's good to hear that you have had all of that support and also, you know, good on you, you know, you're, you're an amazing person just having gone through all of that and you have come out the other end, but you've sent a really strong message to your son that, you know, you, you were prepared to fight to see him. And that is a really strong message and that counts for so much. So no, you have my admiration. Absolutely. So, and I wish you all the very, very best. Thank you, Pippa. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. We are incredibly grateful to all the women who donate their time and their efforts to create this podcast. That includes our guests, our interviewers, and our editors. You can find us on your favorite listening platforms like Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Just search for Philia Podcast. Please help us reach even more women. You can do that by subscribing to our show, by sharing this podcast with your friends, with your family, and with your co-workers, or by leaving us a positive rating and review. Philia organizes the largest annual grassroots feminist conference in the UK. We would love to see you there. You can support our work by joining the Friends of Philia scheme, by giving a solidarity ticket so that even more women can join our conference, and by subscribing to our newsletter. Please take a look around our website, philia.org.uk, to find out more. Together, women make magic happen, and we can't wait to be in touch with you.